What's up, everyone? It's Cheats here from the Black Baseball Mixtape. What you're about to listen to is a very special podcast episode. It is ripped directly from our Instagram Live community conversations, and we are talking to two Oakland legends, Dave Smoke Stewart and Bip Roberts, two sons of Oakland, wind up making it all the way to the big leagues, and they are talking about the recent announcement that the Oakland Athletics have signed a contract to move the team from Oakland to Las Vegas and all kinds of other stuff. It's a conversation that we have with our Black Baseball Mixtape community every either Sunday night or Monday night. So please subscribe to the Instagram page. Check out the podcast. It is a, it's a lot of fun. Without further ado, Dave Smoke Stewart, Bip Roberts in conversation with me, Cheats, on the Black Baseball Mixtape. Just I hear fine. you. Can you hear me? Uh, we're waiting a couple minutes. We're, we're, we're welcoming everybody into the chat, welcoming everybody into the group, and we're going to kick this thing off. We're also going to get uh, uh, your friend, I know a good friend of yours, Dave Stewart, on as well. Uh, he's going to be talking. Um, and we're just going to we're gonna chop it up a little bit, have some straight conversation about, you know, your feelings about the news that broke this week. But also, for people that may not be familiar, like I said, I'm an East Coast guy. The connection between uh, the athletics, the community of Oakland, where you grew, you know what I mean, where you grew up, is so strong and it's so personal that I definitely want to hear, uh, want to hear from you and, and just get your get your sentiments. Uh, first of all, again, a true legend. Thank you for doing this. Not just a legend in the sense of uh, your ability and, and what you've done on the field, but as a person. Uh, that has grown up watching baseball, uh, watching you play, and, and knowing what, what you're all about. Uh, you, my friend, is is a person that we can really say not only made his mark on the game, but made his mark outside the game, if that makes sense. And it's really uh, an honor to have you on the mixtape. And I'll, and I'll start just by asking you, when you heard, heard the news this week, I'm, it may not be a surprise to you, it may not be a shock, but what was your first kind of thoughts and reflections of the news that that the athletics are, are are pretty much leaving Oakland man it was a, an emotional moment I think because I was born in 63 and A's got here in 68 so the A's have been a part of my life ever since basically I knew what baseball was about I started thinking about I guess maybe selfishly thinking and I, I don't, I won't have a game that I can just go to because I want to get away from everything. So I like to just during the day sometimes when they're playing day games, just go out to the game, sit out there and just enjoy the weather and watch a good ball game. And I was thinking, man, I won't be able to do that anymore. And then the business side of me started kicking in saying, you know, these guys, they do need a new stadium. The way they're playing at right now, it's just, it's dilapidated, it's run down a lot of other issues that are going on in the ballpark. You know, you got possums out there. You got a backed up uh, system when it comes to, you know, the restrooms. And it, it's just a field that's been built way back in the 60s. And, and it's, they should have done some things about that years ago. I know business and how it works. And, you know, when you use leverage one city against another, you have a tendency to maybe get what you want maybe not get what you want but whatever it may be you're not going to tip your hand and so i think that even though it looks like both sides oakland and the a's are walking away from each other i kind of think that that's just how negotiations work and in the end before uh, the shovel goes in maybe they talk again i could be wrong i'm hoping that that's not the case because it's tough to lose a team like that, to lose all of your major sports franchises, the Warriors, the Raiders, and, and now it looks like the A's are leaving. And there, there's my big brother right there. Um, yeah, there he we, is. We are joined Stewart, by another legend. I can't even believe this is happening. I'm very humble. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I told you this was going to go down. We have Dave Smoke Stewart, obviously not only an Oakland legend on the field, but an Oakland native. And he's already expressed a lot uh, this week. Have you been following any of his comments? 
We just sorry about that, y'all. <laughs> oh no. If you've been following any of his comments, mm -hmm. you fully understand. Uh, Dave, let me see if I can get you in the in the frame, sir. You got yeah, there you go. Uh this is real personal to you. This is this is more beyond than just a baseball team leaving a town or even leaving a community. This is this is really personal to you. Dave, can you explain to us uh why that is and, and your feelings about just just how this news of this week has impacted you? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm probably not unlike Bip. Um, I grew up at the ballpark. It was I grew up blocks away from the ballpark. Um, from the time the A's came in '68, um, I had been um, a fan of the A's and uh, a frequent at the ballpark. Um, you know, I had an opportunity at a young age to meet meet the players, Reggie in particular, and. Through knowing Reggie, I had an opportunity to meet the rest of the players there. And then, you know, as a fan, you, you, you go through the 72, 73, and 74 years, um, and you have an appreciation for that, especially when you watch them become that dynasty. Um, because when they came to 68, they weren't that good, believe me. <laughs> so you watch them become the dynasty. And then, I know when you, when you really think about Oakland sports, um, you know, we all, when we were youngsters, played the game with hopes of becoming an Oakland A, to be able to play at home in front of, you know, family and friends. And, you know, fortunately, you know, I, I had the opportunity to do that. And so, but when you look, you think about excellence, and it's not just, it's not just the A's, but the A's are a huge part of this. But when you think about Oakland ex excellence, you think about the Raiders and you think about the A's. You know, the the the, the Warriors were originally a San Francisco team, but even the Warriors established excellence in the Bay Area, Oakland in particular. And so when you look at all all three sports, and then you all of a sudden don't have a major sports franchise in a city that has the history that we have, you know, it's it's just hard, hard to believe that that um that this is all headed in this direction. Gentlemen, because like I said, I'm an East Coast guy. So I am not necessarily as familiar with what the athletics meant to the fabric and community of Oakland. However, obviously following from afar, you realize that Oakland itself is a very unique place, a very diverse place with various cultural influences. And Oakland, especially the athletics, especially the years, gentlemen, that you played when they were when they were really good as well, really just embraced the identity of that community. And, and so tell me a little bit about how the athletics in particular were woven into this kind of community and fabric that made it seem cool for all people to be fans of the game. Well, I, like Dave Stewart, was able to grow up on the Oakland A's and able to go out to the ballpark, even on school nights, you know, do my homework and then get out to the ballpark and watch the games. Now, in 72, 73, 74, I was still in elementary school. And the way it was woven into our community is that once we did our work, and you have to remember, the World Series Absolutely. games were played in the daytime back then. And so it was played during school hours. And if we did all of our work, our teacher would roll the, the television in and allow us to watch the game. And so all the kids in just about every elementary school at that time was watching the A's, and the A's were winning. And they became our heroes, and we knew, them. We knew the roster just like the back of our hand. We knew everybody on that team. And I think that's where we all started to develop the love for the game based on the Oakland A's and what they were doing. And back then, I think you remember, Stu, when they, after they would win, they would have the fireworks and the cannons go off. And you knew wherever you were in the city that the A's had just won. So everybody, wherever you were, hey, man, the A's just won, the A's just won. And then we would kind of celebrate, say, yeah, man, that team, you know, and we would talk about the A's. And I think that was something as a kid I'll never forget. And, and I think today is something that where when we talk about this team moving, that's the part where 
emotionally it starts to touch you saying wow that was our childhood and those are our childhood memories we'd like to keep those going we know things don't last forever but, but you we were also, thinking the DAs would be here yeah, remember they had those ace teams had players that we could identify with I mean, mm. when they and when they came into oakland they had reggie jackson you know they had they had reggie jackson they had blue moon Odom, they had fighter blue and as time continued to move on, Billy North, Claudel Washington, you know, the, they had players that we could, we could identify with, Michael Norris, and it just kept coming and kept coming and kept coming. And, you know, and that was the early days. And then, you know, in the, in the period of time that, that I uh, had an opportunity to play for the A's, um, the Haas family, um, were very community oriented as an organization. Um, they wanted to be involved in the Oakland community, all areas of Oakland, and they were involved in Oakland. The players were getting out. You'd see players around the city doing different things that involved our youth, and that was another plus. So, I mean, you know, once again, when they say you 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 play the game because you can identify with the players that that are on, on the field or on the court or in the stadium in, in, in the case of football, the A's had a lot of players that we could identify with um, in the time that we were growing up. You know, and uh, Dave, to, to add to that, yep. Campy Campaneers was a guy I related to, uh, leadoff hitter, guy still in bases, just playing shortstop. And, and every day we played strikeout. I was Burke Campaneris. My other guys were Dick Green and, and so forth, whatever. But, yeah, definitely Gentlemen, Burke what Campaneris. Was, you mentioned some really fond memories, especially um, in, in the formative years of, you know, like you said, Pip, go, look, watching A's play in the World Series in elementary school. That's, that's amazing to hear. What are some of your favorite memories uh, in, in, in that stadium, in the Oakland Coliseum, obviously – between the two of you, you played in World Series there. You played in big games there. Crazy environments. Uh, what were some of you, what has been some of the best memories playing in that stadium that we we know as the Oakland Coliseum? Well, Stu yeah. played in that stadium a lot more than I did. I was more of a fan growing up as a kid watching mm -hmm. the A's, and then I was drafted by the Pirates, and then ended up with San Diego, but. I just remember sitting in the bleachers, getting me a colossal dog, and watching everybody that came to play baseball. We just loved baseball. It was, I think it was an era where our mothers and fathers weren't mm. too far from the old Negro League era. And so when they all migrated from the South and came West, they brought that mentality. My mother was the biggest baseball fan, and she knew everybody by name. And, and everybody that was from Oakland, she said, hey, Joe Morgan, that's the guy. You you can be like that someday. And so I was relating to Joe Morgan, and Beta Pinson was my babysitter. What? So I knew who the Cincinnati Reds were, but I also knew who the Oakland A's was because, again, I could catch the bus there, and I could get in. If I, if I didn't sneak in, I could still get in. And, um, and, I, and like Dave said, we could relate to every player. We knew every player by name. We could identify with that player. And I think that was – more than anything, the best thing that I could remember from the mm. game is that I knew every player at the, in that era. We knew every player, and every player was our hero at that time. So, you know, until I, our guys that I knew, like Claudel, Washington, and then Shooty, and then Ricky, and then Dave came, and, and Mike mm. Norris, these were all local guys. And those were the guys I started looking up to because I definitely wanted to be like them. They, they were paving the way for me, and they were from my area. And because they were from my area, I felt like I could be like them. You know, Lloyd Mosby, and it was so many other guys. I'm just talking about the guys who played for the eight, but there were so many guys who really loved this game of baseball and made it to the big leagues. They were all a little bit older than me, but I knew who they were, and I and was following And just one point footsteps. of clarification, too, sir, because people that – especially younger people that may be watching – when you played, there was no interleague play, right? So there, so you, the stadiums you played in were mostly National League stadiums, right? It wasn't like you would – not like today's game where a National League team would visit to have a series in Oakland. Yeah. 
Well, towards the end of my the, career, we started having <laughs> interleague games, yeah, right? It, you yeah. know, um, uh, when I go back to the childhood, and I'll be brief because um, the things that you remember are, are really the things that you remember. I remember Charlie O'Demule, and <laughs> when they started, they would parade Charlie O around <laughs> the stadium, and and then uh, in between innings, you know, if the umpire was getting short on balls, you'd see the bunny rabbit pop up from, from behind plate, and he could just reach behind him and get baseballs. You know, those are the things that, that I remember about the A's. The, you know, Charlie, Charles Finley, he had a, a nice marketing plan to get people in the ballpark and um, to brand the A's in the way that he did. Um, you know, when you talk to most people now, I mean, there's nobody in the game. And they didn't start off wearing white shoes, but they ended up being the only organization in baseball that wore white shoes and the different uniforms and the different colors with the green and gold, the sleeveless. I mean, they they were, in my opinion, a fashion statement in baseball um, that, in my, you know, just it separated the age from every organization in baseball. You know, the Pittsburgh Pirates were out there, but, you know, they were black and gold, but they were sleeveless. But the A's, I mean, they had different tops, different uniforms, different color variations that really set them apart from the rest of the teams in Major League Baseball. Dave, let me ask you, too, because you played uh, for the Athletics in a time where you were the ace on basically World Series teams. What was that world champion teams? What what was that environment like when, when Oakland was rocking? Because it's one thing to see some of the stuff that we see in, in, in contemporary with like a contemporary age in the modern days. Uh, but when you talk about uh, some of those teams and some of those just winning, <laughs> like they had, you guys had some players, you guys, you were, you know, uh, uh, ace, acing some, some phenomenal teams. What was that environment like for you to step on the hill and, in some of the biggest games in the American league and obviously in the world Series? Well, for 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 a long period of time, I mean, when you you're thinking about it, um, even in 1987, when we were when we were really starting to know who we were, um, the opposition wanted to see us, and you know, a lot of that had to do with you know Jose Canseco and Mark McGuire playing on the same team, having those guys um, playing on the same team, and then we would in, then we evolved after that you know, with Dave Henderson coming here and, you know, we put together a pitching staff of myself and Mike Moore and, and Bobby Welch. And, and then we started adding to that mix and all of a sudden you got a Dave Parker in here and you got, you know, Carney Lansford, who was a mainstay here, but you could see the pieces coming together. And, you know, what was impressive to me, and I've never seen this before or since is when we took the field, the opposition sat in the dugout, and they watched us. They watched us take our BPs, and they watched us throw our bullpens. And, you know, when we came to town, we knew we knew what we were going to do. And the fans, they were coming out in droves to watch us play. And we just had we had that confidence that we could beat you in, in multiple ways. I mean – you know, we had a pitching staff, like I said, of myself, Bobby Welch, Mike Moore. Storm Davis won 19 games one year as our fifth starter. Mm. Dennis Eckersley was on the back end of the bullpen, but, you know, we had Rick Honeycutt and we had Gene Nelson. You know, we had mixes and matches. So, you know, we were a team. When they brought Ricky in, in 89, back to Oakland in 89, we saw no way that any team – should be able to, to beat us ever. You know, and obviously we got surprised in, in some of those World Series. The Dodgers surprised us and Cincinnati surprised us. But what was impressive, and nobody can take this from us, is that we were being watched by the fans. I mean, when you open those gates, you get a few people in there. We almost had game crowd when the gates opened to watch us hit and do our thing. And and then you you got the visiting team that's sitting on the bench watching us 
do our thing. And so when, when you have that, that reaction, you know all you really got to do is get the game started and the game is over because the game was over before we <laughs> You are already in the heads. Before we took first pitch, we knew the game was over. That's phenomenal. That, I mean, that is um, – that's amazing because, like you said, if per other professionals were basically in awe of some of the teams that you had and, and almost – could you, you could imagine uh, the intimidation factor, and then you guys knew it. It's one thing. It's one thing to be a team that's intimidating. It's another thing to have a, a team that knows they're intimidating and counts on that intimidation, yep. and and basically says, "Hey, it, it's it's already over." If you're looking at us like this, it's already over before it starts. Well, the other side, they just knew. I mean, we could beat you with pitching. We could beat you with pitching. I mean, if we if we had a day because, you know, other teams had number one starters, too, that were going to be tough against us. So, so if we can pitch, you know, and go pitch for pitch with their starter, you know, Ricky Henderson was a run standing at the at home plate. He can beat you in so many ways. He can hit the ball out of the ballpark. A walk would be a triple, you know, with Ricky. Yep. But we had we had some big game players. Dave Henderson was a big game player. Mm. And he, he loved the spotlight. I mean, you mentioned the Dave Park, mentioned the name Dave Parker. He should be a Hall of Famer. He should mm. be a Hall of Famer. You know, Tony Phillips was the first super utility player because utility players usually 250, 300 bats. Tony Phillips got 500 at bats playing multiple positions in a season, not just one season. And so, you know, he put us in a position that if Carney Lansford needed a break, Carney could get a break. Or if Walter Weiss and shortstop needed a break, he'd get a break. Mike Gallego needed a break, he'd get a break. And he played all the outfield positions. And this guy was hitting 15, 20 home runs and hitting 280, 290 in that position. Mm -hmm. And then, like I said, I mean, we just had multiple ways that we could beat you, and we knew that. So it was really just figuring out how we were going to beat you because we knew we were going to win the game. That's crazy. That's in, that's amazing. That is amazing. Bip, talk to me about you, just the, you mentioned some of the legendary players. Is there a particular team like a uh, like a run? Like I said, there was that run in the seventies. Obviously, there was a run where where uh, Smoke Stewart was the ace of it. Is there a run of the uh, of a of an Oakland athletics program that you followed the closest and just said, this is something that I identify with even more so than just maybe a casual season? Well, I, I think I kind of identify with the history of it again, because yep. born and raised in Oakland. And at the time I started to really understand what baseball was. My dad took me to an A's game and that had to be in, because I mm -hmm. was born in 63. So that'd be in 68. And then I was like, that's a pretty big outfield when I was the first time I saw it. And it's real green out there. And you try to watch the game as a five-year-old, you still don't know everything that's happening. But as you start to get older, by the time I was eight, I was a competitive athlete. And I knew who everybody was and how they played. And so as I continue to get a little older, I go to the ballpark. Oh, and really? Scout. Okay. So I want to see, can I be like this guy? I want to see how good this guy is. And then as I got a little older and got in high school, I sit behind home plate and try to pick mm -hmm. up Dave's and all those guys' pitches to see if I could see what was coming out of their hands. And I would just sit there and watch Mike Norris throw that slider and a little splitter. And I was, oh, yeah, yeah, there's the change up. And I'm telling my buddies who I'm sitting next to what's coming before it's coming. And they're like, how do you see that? I said, well, I'm a baseball player. I need to know this. And I just think that because they had such great players every year at that time, when you went out there to watch them play, mm. you could learn something from them if that's what you went there for. Some people go there as fans just to watch the game. I went there to watch and see how they went and made their backhands and how they made how they swung the bat. Did they use opposite field? I was never a power hitter, but I would see what Jackson was doing. I would see Murphy go deep, and I would see Rick go deep. And I, I, but I was playing when Conseco and, and Mark McGuire were mm. playing, but I played against them, so I was able to still see exactly how strong the A's were. 
I think even when I played, I was still watching to see what these guys were doing because, again, I was A's was in my blood. But mm -hmm. it wasn't just one team. But I also believe that at my, my years in high school was when Ricky came. And I think that leadoff hitter was and how we, we, you know, we, how we adapted to the game. And so my high school years, I remember this funny story, man. I, I was doing so well in high school and all city, all county, all American. And I saw Ricky Henderson at a basketball game. And he doesn't know me from Joe Blow. And I walked up to him and said, hey, man, how you doing, Ricky? And he said, there's a time and a place for everything. And he walked away. <laughs> <laughs> so, so when I got to the big leagues, I was saying you took that pretty well because I would, I would remember that. I would remember that forever. I, yeah, I remember that forever. I'm sixty. I'll be sixty this year. I still remember that. How the hell that again? He said, "There's a time and a place for everything." I said, "Oh man, I was got embarrassed about it." <laughs> oh. When I got to the big leagues, I got a chance to meet him. You know, I told him, "I said, man, I came to you one day. And you told me, man, it's a, it's a time and a place for everything." But I just think all of these guys do, and all of these guys just made an impression on all of us in Oakland. You know, it was just one of those things where these guys were homegrown and they made it. And we were hungry kids saying, hey, I think I can make it because they made it. So it wasn't just one team, one stretch. I think the 72, 73, 74 team got me in the mix of saying how, how much I love the A's, but it was all the guys that were in front of me from Oakland that really kind of hooked, you know, hooked the bait, uh, hooked me with the, the hook. And um, from then on, I, I just wanted to be a major league ball player. Well, you bring up a good point, And it's something I do want to ask both of you gentlemen while I have you on, because the, the Howard Bryant made this wonderful map. It's a wonderful map of everyone in Oakland <laughs> uh, that, that wound up playing, not just playing professional baseball, but professional athletes. The Pointer Sisters are from Oakland. You know, entertainers, musicians, all of all of these people came and were in these locations. And I will say this, there is some controversy on the map be between where Dave Stewart belongs. I don't know <laughs> if you've ever seen this, but there is several places of Oakland, several different areas of Oakland that claim Dave Stewart to the point where I think there was some fighting in, in regards to where Dave Stewart should be on the map. And I don't exactly know why, but they said Howard Bryant was telling me he got calls saying, no, you got to move Dave over here, move Dave over here. <laughs> Gentlemen, what was it about Oakland, especially in that era? You mentioned uh, obviously greats before you, um, you mentioned, uh, like I said, not just leaders in athletics, but but leaders in entertainment, leaders in civil rights. They were all seemed to be in the same location. Tell us, what was it about Oakland that, that drove, especially for you two, that competitive spirit to be great? Go ahead, Stu. No, no, go. Well, again, I think our families, when they migrated, they all migrated to Oakland. How does that happen? Where most, from everybody, most from the South. Most from the South. And we just loved the game. So not only did we just play organized ball, we played a game called strikeout all day, every day. Mm -hmm. We just go to a ballpark, find a wall that we could use, and me and a buddy would just play strikeout. And it just it just became something we did every day. And it, it, yeah, there were other sports going on. We go play basketball, we go play football, but we always came back to playing strikeout because it was something that we really loved to do. Um, and then again, you start seeing the little league teams and the competitiveness of the little league teams. I got on Seafood Grotto at that time, which was the best team in the city, and we won championships every every year. So at the age of ten, I won championships. So I was like. That was the, the ultimate for me, to win the city championship in Oakland and have almost 300 people at that game celebrating with us. I think that's where I really started to get the fire of playing baseball and, how, and what it meant to us. And, and at, at that time, I was playing against the Pettis boys and, and yep. so many other guys that came out of Oakland that ended up being professional. So at that time, it was so much competition. And then if you, if, if you weren't good enough, you got cut then. So you had to be good in order to make right. these teams. It wasn't that everybody make the team and no. you get a trophy at the end. It was, no, I want the best guys. So you had to go out and compete. And I played with some great guys. Number one pick, Tony Woods. I played with him. He was 12, I was 10. And Eric Frierson got drafted. And Kevin Moon got drafted. And 
and, and so many other guys from my teams got drafted, the Howard Nichols and, and Steve Howards. There were so many guys that got drafted, but we all competed. And I think that's what competition was back then, see who could be the best. And that's kind of what Oakland was to me. It was just competition. And it was competition from East Oakland to North Oakland to West Oakland. It didn't matter. It was competition. And if you weren't that good, you guys didn't win. If you were good, you won a championship and you got your respect. Mm. It was all over. It was, my, my parents are from uh, Louisiana. Uh, my, my mother from uh, New Orleans. My father from, uh, from Lake Charles. And um, when they came here, and that's why people can say that they claim it, because originally, <laughs> originally, I lived in North Oakland. Right, there's a map controversy. When they first came, we were in North Oakland. Then we moved to West Oakland. And then, <laughs> as the, you know, then we moved to East Oakland um, when I was uh, probably six or seven years old. And, um, you know, my brother and I, um, well, first of all, my father um, got me involved in the, in the sport um, by taking me to Giants games before there were A's. And we were going across the bridge to see Willie Mays and, Watched the Giants play McCovey, Jim Ray Hart, the Alou brothers were playing at that time. Um, and then that transition, as you know, to Bobby Bonds ended up playing right field, Gary Matthews playing center field. Um, so I grew up watching the Giants because my father um, always took us out. But my brother, Gregory, who's five years older than me, as Bip said, we would play strikeout in the backyard. And he's five years older than me. And then we would put bases in the street, and I would play against all of my brother's friends that were older than me. And that started the that started it. And then I played for a guy named Alistair Walker, um, which was my first little league team at ten. And I played with Mr. Walker until I was twelve. And in that period of time is when, shoot, I ran into Ricky at thirteen. Ran into Ricky and Lloyd Mosby. Um, the Pettises, God, Cleo Smith, mm. Ed Milner, Ed Miller. I mean, there was so many guys from the Bay. Cleo, Marvin Webb, Fred Atkins, Harold Thomason, Al Woods. I mean, they're just a ton of guys that all played professionally. Not all of us made it to the big leagues, but all those names played professionally. Tack Wilson. They all played professionally, and they were all from the Bay. East Oakland would play at Bushrod. Mm -hmm. We'd play at Belfield. And then we'd all get together on the same team and play after the Bay Ruth season was over with and play at Washington Park in, uh, in Alameda. Mr. Jewell, Eddie Jewell, used to put us all in the back of the truck. And then I met Rudy Law, who was from San Rafael at that time, and we would go over to San Rafael and East Palo Alto in place. So we were playing all over the city, seeing everything that all of the best in the Bay at that time, because we'd be on the San Francisco side, we'd be on the Oakland side playing. And like Biff said, shoot, if you, if you, can't, if you can't cut it, hey, come on back and we'll see you next year. Come on. I'll <laughs> you. There's a couple of years because Ricky was too young, Pettis was too young. They had to sit on the bench and watch and wait for them to get their time to play. That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. And, and it was just so much, not only, obviously, like you said, talent, right? There's so much talent. There is also, like you said, there's also other examples. And I, and I do think it's important to ask uh, both of you gentlemen, the other examples of leadership, community, everybody wasn't a pro athlete, but Pip, you had mentioned it as well. I, I even want to, like, school teachers, police, like, you. it seems that y'all had a sense of community that obviously supported athletics and competition, but it also was a community that had examples of other professionals where we could see in that Oakland community other families, you know, doing really positive things. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, or, or tell me a little bit about that because I think that's important for especially young people today. Not everybody's going to be a pro baseball player, no matter how competitive they are. 
but starting to see some of the, the pillars in the community. Like you said, Oakland had leaders in entertainment, leaders in government, leaders in civil rights. What did that mean for, as you gentlemen kind of grew up in your formative years? Well, we did have a lot of people in our community that wanted to see us do well. And it was from police officers to teachers to community activists to just about anybody in the city who knew who we were. Because once we got to a certain level of high school, we started separating ourselves as to who was going to be going pro or who was going to college. And people would seek us out. I remember Ron Lighton, who was a, a lieutenant on the police force. Cousin. He said, man. that's your cousin? That's crazy, man. That's crazy, man. That's just straight crazy. See? See, Oakland is, is, is so small, man. But Ronnie Lighton, he sought me out. And I was going to play basketball just to go to the park and play. And he sought me out. And he was in his police car, in his police uniform. And he pulled, he said, hey, man, I want to talk to you. And I said to myself, what did I do? I didn't do nothing. He said, no. He said, he said you know, I used to play linebacker. I was All-American linebacker, and I was at Kalsman, and I went to USC, and I saw all this talent around, and it psyched me out. And he said, don't let that happen to you. He <laughs> said, the talent you have can go, and you can play anywhere. And i never forget that, because no one had taken time like that to come seek me out. I don't know how he knew I lived up on Malcolm Avenue, but he came up that Heel in that car at the same time I was going to play basketball. I always say divine intervention is real. And you have to be at the right place at the right time because that's how God wanted it to be. And he wanted Ronnie to talk to me. And I never forgot that. When I got drafted out of high school, I was 17 years old. And I always thought about what Ronnie said. I'm going to go down here to, to Sarasota, Florida, and there's going to be guys who can play. But I can't let them psych me out because I'm just as good. And so we had people like that throughout our community. If, 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 if I would have met Stu when I was a kid, he probably would have told me, hey, you can do this. You know, uh, when I got into pro ball and I was hanging out with Gary Pettis, he was saying, man, you guys can do this. And, and Lloyd Mosby and, and then Al Woods came to our high school and Joe Morgan came to my high school and they were all saying, hey, someday you're going to play in the big leagues. I didn't know that for sure, but I, I thought I was good enough to play. So it was always some guys looking out for us, even the gangster guys. They were like, hey, listen, man, that dude's a student athlete. Leave him alone. You know, we had at that time Felix Mitchell, who was a big-time boy at that time, and he would say, you leave B alone because uh, you don't want me to come see you if you're messing with him, right? So nobody messed with us. We just went ahead and played our ball. We stayed out of trouble, and that was the reason why people gave us the respect, because we didn't try to be something that we weren't. We were ball players, student athletes, mm -hmm. and that's what we did. Yeah. You know, just just to add to it, I mean, you know, I, I mentioned uh, Mr. Jewell, but, I mean, there's there's Mr. Jewell, there's Mr. Mason, there's Mr. Gwen, yeah. Hank Thompson. I mean, the names just go on and on. Mr. Bess, I mean, it, Harry and... Harry Harris and, and John Martin, I mean, they're just a bunch of people that wanted to see us succeed as kids. They recognize uh, ability, talent, um, but and, and they wanted to preserve that. Um, when we were growing up, I knew when I was growing up, it was all around me. And if I didn't have, quite frankly, if I didn't have those individuals in my life, I mean, who knows how it would have? Who knows how it would have ended up? They were diligent every Saturday, every Friday, every Saturday, every Sunday. They were diligent. They were, you almost like clockwork. You knew what was going to happen every weekend. You knew that. And our weekend started in the morning, and they ended at night. When we were coming back from playing ball, man, it'd be a bunch of us in the back of in the back of an old Chevy truck covered up with our jackets, sleep, dropping us off one by one. So our, our weekends were, were really, really crowded with sports and honing our skills and teaching us how to play the game right. But at the same time, playing sports of any type, in my, in my opinion, is the best teacher of how you should carry yourself and act in life. Gentlemen, I'm going to ask you a very biased question, and I want you to be biased in your answer because you talked about some true legends coming out of your community. 
who's the best baseball player you've seen to come out of Oakland? The best player I've seen to come out of Oakland? And be biased. Because I, <laughs> I heard you talk a lot of well, trash now. Well we say the well we say the second best player because <laughs> e. Henderson is the best player okay. ever okay. out of Oakland. So let's put Ricky in a category okay. of his own. Ricky Henderson is in a category of his own. The, the next player out of Oakland, the next best player I've ever seen come out of Oakland would be Rupert Jones. Ooh, tell me about Rupert Jones. I don't know Rupert Jones. Rook was Rook was like the Pied Piper. We worked out at Cal Berkeley on weekends. In the off seasons, I mean, but let's not let's not get it twisted. Roop Roop was probably the best basketball athlete to come out of the Bay, Ooh. but because of his athleticism in basketball, it made him even that much better, that much better in baseball. I mean, he was a tremendous baseball athlete until he ran into that wall, which kind of turned his career. Mm-hmm. Rupert was one of the one of the best players in the game, in my opinion, defensively. And what made him good is that he he, he was serious about the sport. Like he was serious about his regimen. He was serious about getting ready and prepared to play, not just physically but mentally. And what made him it, it what what made him good is is when you put all those things together, it just he was just a superior athlete on the baseball field. He could do things that people couldn't do. That's amazing. That's a lesson for me. Fip, same question. Well, I am biased. <laughs> I, I know that Ricky Hindu was an all-time great. And like Dave said, we put him in another category. All right, he's another category. We, we call him the greatest. That's what we call him. We, we say that all the time. My guy. I know Frank Robinson grew up in Oakland. Beta Pinson grew up in Oakland. Kurt Flood grew up in Oakland. Yes. Dave Stewart grew up in Oakland. Yeah. All of these guys were great, all of them, because of their mentality. My favorite guy, let's just say it that way, my yep. favorite was Joe Morgan mm. because I, I could relate to Joe mm-hmm. Morgan. We were the same size, and I saw him do some things that were incredible. And Joe, was a, he hit third in the, the big red order. Third. Now he was the little guy, but he was yep. the guy that they feared the most. Yep. And if if we're gonna say Ricky's the greatest, and I'll say Joe's close to being the greatest because wherever he went, they won. And he was MVP. He did it all. I mean, man. And not only did he do it on the field, but he was a big part of the Oakland community, and he showed us exactly how to 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 walk that walk. You know, Joe never got in trouble. You never heard his name in tabloids or on the front page for doing something wrong. He always was very respectful in the way he approached us and always was there to teach when I needed him. And anytime he said, hey, even when I got out of pro ball and he was doing television, he said, hey, do you want to work for ESPN? Because I can get you on there. I said, no, nah, Joe, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. <laughs> but but he, was, he was that guy that from day one said, hey, you can make it. And that was in high school. I got to play catch with Joe in high school. And that's why I say he's my favorite. Mm. And the whole time we're playing catch, I didn't say a word. I just pretty much stared at him the whole time. Like, <laughs> and all. I'm, playing, I'm playing catch yeah. with Joe Morgan. And the guys told me years later, after I took batting practice, he said, that kid's going to be in the big leagues. I didn't know that. I didn't know that until later. So I think he's just he was just the greatest dude that that I could really say, hey, someday I want to be like. In many ways, gentlemen. Oh, go ahead, Dave. I'm sorry. Okay. What'd you say, Dave? <laughs> I forgot about uh, Joe. I might have to put Rupert third. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. No. Yeah, Dave, I don't I don't forget the little guys, no. you know. That's <laughs> Now, and Biff, in many ways, I can relate because I'm sitting here on Instagram saying I'm talking to Dave Stewart and Biff Roberts. I don't even know if I can get my words out. To be <laughs> no, you're doing a great job. <laughs> Gentlemen, I, I want to ask you both uh, as we wind down on our time because this is the Black Baseball Mixtape. And one of the goals of this uh, platform has been to raise awareness amongst our community 
about the modern day game, raise uh, just information, have conversation, expose people to let them know that black people are still interested in the game of baseball and still support it. And we have a lot of players. What advice? I know you're asked all the time, but what advice do you give maybe that eight-year-old, 10-year-old, 15-year-old uh, black player that you see learning the game, doing all the right things for him to be ultimately the best player he can be, not to make it to the pros, not to play in the MLB, but what advice do you give to a young black player to just be the best he can in the face of you know, a situation where there may not be a lot of guys that look like him on his team or playing against him? Well, I work with a lot of kids in the community here, and the one thing they have is passion. And if you have the passion to play the game, then go ahead and, and, and go for it. A lot of guys right now, they may not be thinking about pro ball, but they are, they're on schedule to go to college because they love this game. So we don't preach you, you can make it to the big leagues because that's so far away. We have to take one day at a time. Let's see where we are today, and then we'll worry about tomorrow when we get to tomorrow. But a lot of these kids, and they work out at, at Jimmy Gwynn's son, Brian Gwynn's facility out in Fairfield, and it's packed with probably 90% African-American kids. Mm. Right. So the kids love the game. They, they love this game. A lot of kids are going to Fresno State. They're going to Cal. They're going to Cal State Fullerton. They're going to a lot of these different schools coming up. So where we may not see a high number of kids in the major leagues right now, I think it's 6 to 7%. There's a lot of kids that are playing the game, and they love this game. They, they just want an opportunity to make a team somewhere. And so I think my job, and, and I'm sure Stu is the same way, our job is to teach these kids, kind of coach them along the way, because they need that. They need to know that. In order to get to the big leagues, it's not easy because it's a long road. For some of us, we had to go from rookie to A to high A to double A to triple A to big, and you have to be patient. So patience is the key. As long as you have the passion, I think the patience will take you a long way. And for me, um, you know, um, I was involved in uh, travel baseball. Um, and, you know, one of the things that um, I found to be helpful with young kids playing the game is that you have to keep fun in the game. Um, the young kids that, and some of them have gone on, I should say a lot of them have gone on to be professionals. And the kids that, that kept fun in the game have turned out to be very, very good professionals. Um, the kids that that were serious about the game. And there's nothing wrong with being serious about the game, but being serious again about the game, it really puts pressure on you daily. Because when you don't play the game well, or you have a bad at bat, or you have an 0 for 4 day, um, it, you become very, very hard on yourself. And the things that you carry as a kid are the things that you carry as an adult. And so playing this game and playing it at, at the level, especially when you become a professional, um, I always tell, tell, tell the guys that um, I coached, you don't need to worry about the bad things that are going to be said about you because the media is going to take care of that. And so there's no point and you beating yourself up and them beating yourself up and them beating you up. And then the other team is beating you up too. So now it's three against one. <laughs> so, um, I wholeheartedly try to impress on kids to always keep the game fun because I'm, I'm telling you nine times out of 10, the attitude that you carry as a youngster, and it will follow you when you become a professional, if you become a professional. And for some, you may not become a professional because you took the fun out of the game. I do have to ask, though. I, I, I will be remiss if I don't ask, because Dave Stewart seemed to be one of the most serious of <laughs> all time. I mean, 
I mean, most serious, most stoic, most I'm going to take your heart out of your chest when I'm on the hill. During this time, were you having fun? Did you keep the fun in the game? Believe me, I I was serious about getting me some of them hitters. I was serious about that. I don't even say it, but it ain't a bad word. I was serious about getting some of that ass from them hitters. But the fun was getting some of that ass from them hitters. <laughs> it, it, man, there ain't nothing better than watching a guy have, you know, that Bip will tell you, man, there's some guys you face and you say, man, I had a comfortable, I had comfortable at batch today. <laughs> but sometimes you say, Damn, I got my work cut out for me today. Mm-hmm. I always wanted to be that guy. So, yeah, man, I was having a great time out there. I'm going to ask you both, and, and obviously one's a pitcher, one's a hitter. Uh, but in, in that vein, who was the hitter that when they dug in the box or you looked at the roster card, Dave, you knew you were in for a day? The hitter for me was um, the two. And, and, and I'm <laughs> – I got a story connected. One was Paul Molitor. Mm-hmm. The other one was Ken Griffey Sr., who passed the bat on to Ken Griffey Jr. <laughs> <laughs> so you didn't want to see you didn't want to see any Griffies on the lineup card. And Kid told me a story. We were we were at a golf tournament. He told me a story because often people ask him who his first major league hits were off of, and they were off of me. And and he told me me he says we were we were sitting talking Jeter was there and he told me he says man I called my daddy and I said dad what you got on him <laughs> and sure enough man first two first two at bats double off the wall and a hard hit hard hit ball to right center field so I told him I said man I knew I should have broke your daddy's bat <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man, that's amazing. I see Ty Brooks on the check-in. What up, Ty? Bip, same question for you. Who was it when you knew you, you looked at the lineup card, you're like, man, I'm going to be in for a day today? Is it a good day or bad day? Because, you know, hitters, you know, we don't give pitchers much credit. <laughs> who, who would you give some credit to, Bip? Who would you give some credit to? Uh, Jamie Moyer, because he threw the ball so slow that it never got to the plate. <laughs> it just And it had a little tail on it. But, yeah, guys like that, man, they were crafty. You know, the thing about the big leagues is sometimes it's not the big names that give you fits. You're thinking that maybe Pedro will give you fits, uh, Greg Maddox, or so many different guys. But it's always that guy that don't throw hard. He just goes out there and mixes, and he pitches, and he hits spots, and he has you looking horrible out there. Like like Stu said, that was a comfortable 0 for 4. Comfortable for four. Did you did you ever get him? Did you ever get him? Jamie Moyer? No. 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 <laughs> I, I I never I never I never got. It was tough. Um, but but then you you start facing guys who are up on that top ten percent, and those are the guys you say, you know what? Uh, if I I can make a name off, I can make a name for myself off these guys, and and it's a different day. You get up for those guys, but then you're facing guys who you faced in AAA. When they get to the big leagues, now they have another extra pitch that they didn't have in AAA. And you're like, well, where do you get that from as you take another comfortable 0 for 4? <laughs> the one thing about our game is that I have never run into a perfect hitter. I don't know anyone has ever hit 1,000. And so you get three, four, five hundred at-bats a year, you're going to have some tough days. I understand. Gentlemen, I, w- I want to close it back with, with your final – final comments and reflections and thoughts on the athletics. But before I do, there is one question that I ask all of my guests, all of my guests, and you, you gentlemen are a little bit different in the sense of the level you played and how long you played, but I'm going to ask it in a different way. And I hope uh, it, is, it is respectful in that sense. If it's a player, and again, this is a pitcher and a hitter. So I'll, I'll start with you, Bip. If there was a pitcher, any pitcher, that you never faced in your life? So living or dead, but you've never faced that picture. Who would you want to face and why? I probably want to face, let me just say, there's three guys, John Smoltz, Greg Maddox, or Pedro Martinez, because I hit well over 400 against all of them. 
So I know I was going to have a good day. And in this game, when you have a good day, it's not a good day in the big leagues. It's a great day. And so we mm. always went out there to have a great day. And so with facing any of those guys, I would say I'm going right. to have a great day because we all want to have Bip, great days. But, Bip, the question is somebody you've never faced. Oh, never day, faced? Never faced. Uh, that you would want a dream matchup, if you will, that you've uh, never faced. Uh, Dave Stewart. Mm. Mm. That was, hey, you want that smoke? I want to face my Oakland homeboy and see what what he, what he was really made of. Oh wow, that's a good answer. This has never happened on the Black Baseball mixtape before. The dream answer is sitting right here. Nothing wrong with an uncomfortable uncomfortable. <laughs> How do you think you would have done? You dug in against Dave Stewart in his prime. How do you think you would have done? He threw well, I know if I would have worked in the 3-2, I wasn't getting a fastball. I know that. <laughs> you might have got it. But you, the other time that I got, got you on the fork ball. Yeah, see? Yeah, that was – that's one thing Stu had. I'm going to tell you guys, see, as a hitter, when a guy has a, a fork ball, it's going to be – a very frustrating day because a lot of times you're going to chase the ball in the dirt. And when you chase the ball in the dirt in front of 35,000, 40,000 people, it, it's not a good sight. And he had that type of pitch to make you look bad. So I hopefully would try to hit his fastball early in the count and get out the box. That's go. amazing. Yeah. I'm gonna ask, Dave, I'm going to ask you the same question. Somebody you've never faced, living or dead, who would you want to, to see what they're made of? Who would you have wanted to dig in with and see what they're made of? Robinson. That's the man. I, I would want to see him. I want to see his game, see his, see how he played it. I mean, you see pictures and photos of him, but you never really know how people play the game until you get an opportunity to, to pitch against him. Mm. Um, that would have been for me, if I could bring him back, just give me one day, four bats. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing that's a great great answer gentlemen we're winding down on the hour uh this has been uh, a dream conversation for me uh, i want to go back uh on, on some reflections of your final kind of thoughts overall that you gave me the impression that there, there you still have some hope you're still holding out some hope that that everything can kind of get course corrected oakland stays the athletics stay in oakland uh if this indeed is the beginning of, of, of moving to another location. When, when you think of it, what's some of the, your, your, your thoughts of it? Well, I, I'm just hoping that in business, when you negotiate, sometimes it looks as if it can't happen and you start hearing things. I just don't want to believe it yet, even though it could be something that's about to happen. I just think that until I see a shovel go on the ground, I still have hope that they could find a way to stay. I just don't know for sure. I try not to really get wrapped up in it because mm. it's it's very emotional. Um, again, I do understand why they would move if they do move because, hey, they're in it to make money. They need a new stadium. I, I understand that. I, I just wish that it could work out here in Oakland because I think it, here at home is where the A should be. But, hey, I don't control that. Um, but – Wherever they go, they're always going to be the Oakland A's to me. And that's, that's my childhood dream team, and they're always going to be a part of my life. I'm same sentiment as BIP. You know, I know that they're, they're talking about it, and, and they have a binding agreement um, for the land. Um, but it's the beginning stages. There's a lot of things that have to happen. And, you know, going through this process in Nashville is right now, you know, land and building a stadium and getting permits, raising money. Yeah. You know, there's only so much private funding that you can you can put into it. You're going to want some public funding. And I think the VAs right now are caught with public funding. How much is the city of Las Vegas going to give them? And, you know, there may be, there may be a loophole there at some point if they can't raise the funding, if they don't get enough then, you know, it might open the door um, for them to negotiate more with the city of Oakland. Mm. But once again, I'm not really sure how much you're going to get done with the city of Oakland as well. Mm. So 
But there is a period right here. There's a little window that something could happen to keep the mirror in the Bay Area. Well, for everyone's sake, in regards to, gentlemen, the legacy that you speak of, the legacy that you grew up with, uh, as a fan, as somebody that watched some of those really intimidating teams and players, and uh, obviously I've watched you both, I, I hope that whatever works out is the best for, for the Oakland community because the fabric of that community has been so connected to the athletics, obviously, like you said, through your your childhood and what's what's been woven there. And again, not just uh, from a pure sports perspective, but from a community perspective, it's something that I hope is, is, you know, what can be done is done. And gentlemen, I thank you both so much for your time. I know this is, we're going to have plenty of conversations as, as all of this moves down the line and you guys individually will be pulled to talk about this and talk about that and reflect and do these things. I, I really respect your time. I thank you so much for it. Uh, before I end the live, I do want to, we got a lot of new fans. Uh, if you haven't checked out the Black Baseball mixtape uh, that are following now, please do so. Please give us a follow. I hopefully will be able to make this conversation a podcast, a Black Baseball mixtape podcast, and put it up on our podcast channel as well. Uh, I would be remiss, and I would be not doing my diligence if I did not thank Lonnie Murray on air for all she has done to make this particular conversation happen. And I know she was in the chat talking a lot of trash <laughs> and doing the things that she does, which is, is just phenomenal. So uh, I, a really, really special thank you uh, to Lonnie and all she has done to bring these two legends on the mixtape. Uh, and again, Bip and Dave, thank you so much for your time. I truly, truly appreciate it. You are. And I enjoyed for having me on. Thank you, thank both. You. Thank you both, gentlemen. Uh, we are going to have to have